Scripture shapes the lives of billions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I am Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. Joining me are Professor Francesca Murphy. Welcome. Hi. Professor Svinovic. Good morning. We are delighted to welcome Professor Nathan Eubank, Associate Professor of New Testament in the Department of Theology at Notre Dame and the author of Wages of Cross-Bearing and Debt of Sin, The Economy of Heaven in Matthew's Gospel, which is published by de Gruyter in 2013. Professor Eubank's research centers on the Synoptic Gospels and Paul, as well as ancient biblical interpretation. He is currently working on merit in early Christianity and its role in the construction of Christian origins. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Minding Scripture brings together the life of the mind with the life of faith, and to that end, we are delighted today to explore the importance of critical scholarship on the Bible. How has scholarship on both the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and the New Testament changed through the years? What are the major questions that shape biblical scholarship today? These are some of the questions which Francesca and I will be discussing with our Bible scholars, Sfi and Nathan. And I think Francesca is going to start us off. Yes, I'm very interested in this question of whether there is progress in historical criticism. And I'll tell you the background to my interest. As an undergraduate at Manchester in the 70s, I must have taken six, seven courses in Old Testament and New Testament. And, for example, we studied the documentary hypothesis, and I colored it into Genesis. I have, my Bible still has colored blocks showing JDP, and the same for New Testament criticism. I thought there were some things which we'd learned. I thought all of this was settled science. So then I go away and I do my PhD, which is in systematic theology, so I'm not hearing anything about historical criticism for maybe five, six, seven, eight years. Then I come back, I start teaching, and I learn that, that things are changing. And all kinds of things that I thought were settled science were being questioned. And this sort of shook me, shocked me. Um, and this has gone on over the years. And just recently in, a, in one of our seminars on scriptural reasoning, I mentioned that the idea of the resurrection of the body or the afterlife is late within Judaism. And Zvi said, well, not necessarily. And I thought, oh, we have to discuss this question. <laughs> because, you know, in the way I was taught it, there was a definite, you know, there was an evolution of this idea, where first you had a little bit of an idea of a soul, and then later you, you got a slightly more firm, you know, I know my Redeemer liveth in Job, and so on. And so there's a definite evolution of the idea of the afterlife within uh, Judaism um, in, in Hebrew Bible over a thousand years. And the idea that this evolution could even be questioned, you know, it shakes me to the, to the core. And so I wanted to talk about that in this podcast. And I thought we should begin by saying, well, what is historical criticism? If we're going to talk about whether there's progress in historical criticism, whether there's anything such as settled science in historical criticism, we should first of all say, what is it? Which century did it begin in? What are the main names? You know, who are the main people? Did Hebrew Bible criticism start first and then New Testament? 
or how did it all come about? So maybe Svi first and then Nathan, tell me, how did it all come about? Um, sure. Um, and uh, th there's a lot to say, I suppose, that, um, with respect to the, the background to your question. And I, I guess part of the uh, answer to that would be to think comparatively about historical criticism as a method in comparison with other areas of inquiry. Uh, I might say scientific inquiry, but the whole question of to what extent historical criticism is scientific is, uh, is itself a, an interesting question. But, uh, but as to the narrower question of, the, um, of what historical criticism is and how it develops, I suppose I would define historical criticism as an approach to the study of the Bible that attends to the fact that books of the Bible uh, were produced in specific historical contexts, and this makes a difference for uh, the meaning of the Bible. The audience for whom the Bible was written knew things. The producers of the Bible could assume knowledge by that audience that uh, the current readership of the Bible uh, doesn't possess because of changed circumstances. So, uh, I mean, if we define historical criticism in that way, or even more generally as the inquiry into where do these texts come from, who wrote them, uh, under what circumstances, uh, then you can think of historical criticism as having uh, very deep roots. I mean, in a certain respect, historical criticism begins in the Bible itself when, for example, the Bible is uh, trying to, uh, is, is suggesting that the Song of the Sea uh, was sung by Moses at the splitting of the sea. That's kind of an attempt to uh, situate a traditional poem uh, that doesn't assert itself as having been written by Moses and give it a, a an historical location. This is Exodus uh, 15 uh, This or is 16? Exodus 15. That's 15. Right. Uh, yeah, so... Um, or, or the, the idea of specific psalms um, having been uh, recited by David under specific circumstances. There's a kind of uh, ar arguably a, a, an historical framing there or an attempt to locate these texts in specific circumstances. In, in, the, in the medieval period also, numerous medieval Jewish exegetes, for example, are attentive to the fact that there are kind of sort of uh, references in the Bible that are unintelligible to us, uh, but seem to have, the Bible seems to assume that they would have been understood by their audience. So, for example, Aaron, the high priest, uh, right, it says that his son marries from uh, the daughters of this man named Putiel, someone whom we have no idea, uh, the, the Bible makes no reference to this person otherwise, uh, but the fact that the Bible bothers to mention it suggests that the audience uh, of this text was aware of this person and he had some kind of reputation. Uh, and so medieval commentators will note, well, he must have been some uh, some famous person in his day and we don't know about him. And that, that in itself, there is a, uh, an historian's attitude over there. And you find those sorts of uh, observations uh, kind of throughout uh, medieval Jewish exegesis. Can I, can I yeah, interrupt sure. just, just to ask, I mean, does this mean you're locating the roots of historical critical scholarship within the tradition and not as a response to certain things, say, going on in the 19th century. You see it as an organic development. Well, I wouldn't say that there's an organic development between this sort of uh, inner biblical or medieval exegesis on the one hand and the sort of developments that occur uh, in the 19th century. I, I, I think what are probably, those developments uh, that occur yeah, in the 18th yeah, the, and 19th right, century? Yeah, so, 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 so yeah, th those, are, um, those are, I think, are, are somewhat different. But on the other hand, um, okay, it's helpful to realize, uh, to appreciate uh, the continuity. But right, but in the 19th century, well, really, really even before the 19th century, Spinoza is a very, very important figure here already in the 17th century. And he uh, was Jewish, wasn't he? Uh, Spinoza is Jewish, uh, though with, a, with, a, with a, um, a very interesting background. His family is a Murano family. Uh, so having converted under compulsion to Christianity 
in Spain uh, and then having later moved to Amsterdam uh, where they were free to practice their religion. Uh, and it's long been thought that this sort of background, this Murano background of having converted under compulsion to Christianity and then living as Christian publicly but as Jewish or resistant in any, in any case privately leads to a kind of uh, free thinking, a kind of freedom from, from tradition because when they return to the, the Jewish fold, they do so having formed uh, their Jewish thinking uh, independent from a Jewish community. Uh, and so you see sort of a free thinking emerging uh, in that context. Spinoza, in any case, uh, certainly was uh, quite bold in his thinking. And he, he posited that much of the Pentateuch couldn't have been written by Moses. It's not such a bold idea when you think about it. I mean, the Pentateuch, uh, the five books of Moses in tradition, don't actually attribute uh, their own their authorship to Moses. They speak of Moses in the third person. Moses dies before the Pentateuch is over. And so it's not so bold an idea uh, when you think about it, but for traditional Jews, certainly, uh, and then more broadly, uh, 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 traditional Christians, this was a, a bold idea. So one could think of him as a major early figure in modern historical criticism. And then after that, you get to uh, kind of other ma major figures in the 18th and 19th century, Jean Ostruck in France, Julius Bellhausen is an important name in uh, in Germany in the 19th century, and then you get uh, modern historical criticism um, as we uh, as we know it with these names in the uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So, what comes about then in the late 18th, early 19th century is what you could call an exclusively historical criticism. That's what's new about it: is that it's exclusively historical. When you say exclusively historical, what do you mean by that? To exclude to it, the exclusion it of what? It claims to be exclusively historical. No I mean, without without an attempt exactly, to tradition, right? Exactly. Right. Outside uh -huh. of tradition and theology, it's exclusively historical. Yeah, I mean, I'd be idea? curious to hear kind of Nathan's views on this, but uh, but I would say that um, the the these figures, as certainly uh, someone like Spinoza and Jean Astruc, who kind of f first develops this idea of distinct sources, say in the Pentateuch, that uh, have been wound together and can in principle be unwound are, are certainly very th theologically in, inclined and in part uh, doing their work to defend against um, more, more radical views. So the, the, the relationship between historical criticism and faith in this period uh, I think is a, is a, is a, is a complicated question and I, and I think it's fair to say that for the most part we're not dealing with secularizing radicals uh, in, 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 in this early period. Yeah, that's right. In the early modern period, the relationship between history and theology becomes fraught in a way that it wasn't, say, for, um, to, to use an ancient Christian example, Augustine, who said that, you know, it's very important that one interprets a saying in light of its, its context and the culture, and you should know the language, and you, you should compare manuscripts to make sure you have the right reading. And that sort of work was either done, or at least the importance of it was acknowledged for centuries. But what starts to happen, I think, in the early modern period is it became apparent to some people that history might impinge on theology or might limit what theologians are able to do, but it, it certainly isn't the case that the historical critics were simply anti-theological. So to, to give two examples before we get to the 19th century, Richard Simon, an oratorian priest, a French priest, is, is sometimes called the, the father of historical criticism, which probably isn't quite accurate. But he thought that digging into the historical study of the Old and New Testaments was a way of refuting uh, Protestant emphasis on the Bible alone. He said, you look closely at this historically, and it 
falls apart. You know, you, you, you need, need tradition. You, you need, need a tradition. Need, yeah. Right. And right. his and he wasn't exactly thanked for his efforts uh, by, by, by other Catholics, including the Oratorians. So so quite how this all um, sifts out was was disputed. At the same time, you already have, say, in the 18th century, English deists who seized on these methods, sharpened by the Renaissance, sharpened by classical studies. So we're going to read the Bible the same way that we read anything else, you know, Homer or Plato or whatever. And they use these tools to try to um, offer kind of radically revisionist accounts of um, Christian origins, of, of sacred history. And so it could, it, it could go both ways. It continues into the 19th century when, in Germany especially, the historical critical paradigm starts to reign supreme in the universities. And you have some people saying it's necessary to do the historical work first so we can understand what the Bible really says, and then you can build your dogma off of that. So um, just to sorry to jump in, but I mean, it sounds like the beginnings are pretty chaotic, and that's a word that comes to mind because you have, you have believers. I mean, the case of Spinoza sounds like basically a believer, and the case of the, the French priest you mentioned. Richard Simon. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and But then you have people coming outside of sort of the community, and so it's not like there's an, an organized effort by a community of faith that says, well, let's move forward with this sort of scholarship because it can enrich in our life of faith or something. It, it sounds a little chaotic. Very chaotic, and it happens in fits and starts. For example, on the Catholic side, when you get into the 19th and early 20th century, there were many scholars who were strong believers who thought that their work was there to, to build up the church who were silenced. If you read the work of Catholic biblical scholars, even in the early 20th century, uh, oftentimes you can find them tiptoeing around certain issues uh, because they'd been told that they, you know, certain conclusions, such as that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, were, were ruled out of bounds. And so it is, it's always been a, 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 there's been a difficult give and take and I think people in religious communities who are not themselves historical critics, many have always been unconvinced of the value, I think. Right. And it's also, I think, um, very tempting to take a position on the findings and methods of historical criticism that are somewhat opportunistic. So I think, for example, of the, um, you know, the discovery in the Near East in the 19th century of the Epic of Gilgamesh and uh, the discovery that there is evidence of a, of a flood narrative uh, beyond the Bible, and this can be uh, welcomed by believers as a confirmation of the truth of the Bible. On the other hand, the when one digs down into the implications of this uh, and more generally into the kind of the methods that inform a, a kind of a, a comparison uh, or a situ situating of the Bible in its ancient and Eastern context, you get a much more complicated portrait. And so sorting out to what extent this method and these findings uh, challenge faith, uh, to what extent they confirm it, was and is a complicated question. Some historical critics have managed to um, work out an implicit philosophy or even metaphysic, uh, the relationship between God and creation from historical criticism and have thought that the day-to-day the -day work of historians necessarily excludes God. I mean, a famous example of this is Ernst Trelch's essay on the distinction between historical and theological method. And, and he said, look, if we read the Bible like anything else, we read it like any other text, the way that we're reading it necessarily cuts God out of the events of human history. That's, that's just the way that we work. And so to be consistent, you know, you need to leave God out of things um, completely. And so, 
I mean, that, that's an example of somebody taking this the same task. Other people around him in the same time and place thought that they were doing God's work. For Trelch, he could push it in a very kind of radical direction. So those are methodologies. I mean, that, that's not part of like the content of historical criticism. That's part of the methodology of one historical critic. Well, I mean, Trelch thinks that any honest historical critic should come to the same conclusion that he does. Right. Many scholars have felt that way. <laughs> Should we get on to content maybe second, a bit? Second, second question. Yeah, right. So we have the second question, which leads us more to think about what were the subjects or the particular insights that were developing the thought of biblical scholars in the 19th century. And I think we've brought up two of them that I, I wonder if you could elaborate on. We'll start maybe with Svi. And the first is the question of the documentary hypothesis. We mentioned JEDP, the four supposed sources, I think developed by Wellhausen, but maybe you can correct me on that. So um, maybe you could touch on that. And then the question of ancient Near East, generally discoveries in the world of Assyriology that somehow have importance for biblical criticism. Yes. Yeah, so uh, as far as the documentary hypothesis is concerned, so, so this is a hypothesis that's specifically about the Pentateuch. So it's not about the Bible generally, but about the five books of Moses. And Wellhausen uh, kind of formulates a hypothesis, a particular view of the development of the Pentateuch that becomes to some extent canonical for a number of decades afterward. But he is doing more of a synthetic work, uh, synthesizing work on sources of the Pentateuch that had uh, already begun uh, more than 100 years before his key work was published uh, in the second half of the 19th century. But basically, as this, uh, as this hypothesis emerges, the claim is that there are distinct tellings of the early history of Israel from the creation of the world to the death of Moses. And there are different groups of Israelites telling the story in somewhat different ways. And then you have the work of a redactor or an editor who's bringing together these sources, or perhaps uh, multiple editors at different points. One brings together a couple of sources, then another one adds, a, uh, adds another source to produce what we know of as the Pentateuch. And, right. and then in, in its classical form for Wellhausen, uh, we have these four sources, J, E, D, and P, the Yahweh source, J, uh, and E, this Elohis source, uh, that are distinguishable on the basis of the names that they use for God, right? And so this is thought to be a, a major kind of clue to unlocking the Pentateuch. Why does the Pentateuch use different names for God? Sometimes it refers to God by a generic Elohim, God, uh, and sometimes it uses the proper name of God, the Tetragrammaton, which scholars uh, hypothesize uh, is pronounced Yahweh, and so uh, goes by J, uh, pronounced in, in German, Yah. And then uh, there's a distinct source behind Deuteronomy. And then there are priestly authors who are producing this fourth strand. And so this is this uh, hypothesis in its classical form. It also uh, makes certain assumptions about the order, right? Which one is earlier, which one is later. And there are a lot of theological assumptions encoded into this hypothesis about which are earlier, which are later. Uh, and I could get, get into that uh, if we'd like. But this is all about the Pentateuch. So, so it's a small part of historical criticism. It does have also uh, very early uh, roots in a certain respect. You have, again, to advert to medieval Jewish exegesis, and this is something that Jewish scholars today looking to try to find a path forward for uh, traditional Jews who both want to accept the authority of the Pentateuch, uh, because the Pentateuch is so central for Judaism as the locus for biblical law. So for tra traditional Jews who both want to accept the authority of the Pentateuch uh, and to acknowledge the findings of historical criticism, so they do advert to these kind of early 
traditional kosher medieval exegetes, right? If they believe it, then surely we can, so, who do suggest uh, or uh, complicate uh, a, a simple assumption about Mosaic authorship. So I'll just give one example. When Abraham arrives in the land in Genesis 12, the Bible notes that Abraham travels around until Shechem, uh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Um, so this is a troubling passage because it implies that the, the author of the Bible is saying the Canaanites were then in the land, uh, but they're not there now. Uh, but if Moses is writing the Bible, uh, why should he be saying the Canaanites were then in the land? The Canaanites were in the land at the time of Moses. And so you have a fantastic creativity devoted to trying to solve this problem. But a medieval exegete, Ibn Ezra, says, of course, this may not be the case, uh, in which case there is a secret here uh, and the wise person will keep silent. So he's kind of gesturing toward, uh, toward an awareness that the traditional narrative needs to be complicated. So that's one kind of yeah, major set of findings uh, the, the, or w- one um, major result of early historical criticism, but with, specifically with respect to the Pentateuch. But then there's a whole world of historical criticism and attentiveness to the Bible as an historical artifact uh, beyond the documentary hypothesis. All of the findings of the ancient Near East that are occurring beginning in the 19th century largely and then throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century were constantly uncovering new texts. Numa Elish was um, also discovered. Right, Gil, which uh, Gil, right. so Gilgamesh, which, which uh, offers uh, a tremendous insight into the earliest chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 11, the kind of prehistory or mythic prehistory, and Numa Elish, which, uh, which is a, uh, a Babylonian creation uh, myth that sheds great light on Genesis 1. There are findings from various, I mean, it, it, it's innumerable, really. There, there, isn't, there isn't a, uh, a book in the Bible that is not illuminated, uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible, that is not uh, illuminated um, by the findings of the ancient Near East. Just, I was thinking because of the Ibn Ezra narrative, which yeah. it seems he was sort of used as a way of justifying the legitimacy of biblical criticism, saying this is not something totally foreign to the tradition. But I just want to ask then generally about, so what was the social context as scholars were advancing these ideas? Um, was there a resistance um, among other scholars from a religious perspective? Were they um, labeling this as somehow heretical, mm-hmm. blasphemous? fundamentally problematic. Maybe, Nathan, you could comment on this too for New Testament scholarship otherwise. I mean, yeah, was was this like a, a vivid, intense, polemical debate? Sure. Well, I mean, within the Jewish context, I'd say, I mean, m- most of this work is occurring, uh, as Nathan had mentioned, kind of in, in, in a university context and uh, in its early stages in the in the 19th century, Jews are, are not involved in this to any significant degree, uh, but they are consumers of it. Uh, and uh, there is very strong traditionalist uh, opposition, uh, and that's it's grounded in part in tradition and the commitments of faith. It's also grounded in part in a recognition uh, that I think modern scholarship has come to also uh, that many of the assumptions of historical criticism in the in the 19th century really and beyond, they came with their own assumptions, right? There is a kind of a, a hope for objectivity, historical objectivity in approaching these questions, but uh, scholars are people too, and they come with their own uh, theological assumptions historical scholarship in the 19th century, many of those assumptions are anti-Semitic assumptions uh, formed by traditional understandings of uh, the New Testament and its reception. So, for example, to get back to Wellhausen, uh, his view was that the last of these four documents uh, that came together to produce the Pentateuch was the priestly source 
Uh, and in his narrative, you begin with these early sources that have a, a robust anthropomorphic kind of conception of God, and then it becomes uh, fossilized in the exilic period because he dates this last source, this priestly source, uh, to the exilic period. It becomes fossilized and ritualized in the work of priests who are, in, uh, in his conception, clearly uh, proto-Pharisees. So, so he's encoding a, a kind of assumption about the sort of Judaism and the Jewish context that Jesus um, uh, emerges in uh, and critiques, he's encoding those assumptions about what Judaism is, fossilized belief system whose, whose end has come, whose time has come, or whose, whose time is over, into his reconstruction of the development of the Pentateuch. And so you get, for example, Solomon Schechter, who is a, a famous uh, Jewish scholar, very important in the early history of the Cairo Geniza, which is, I suppose, a, a topic for a different day. But he delivers a famous lecture in the beginning of the 20th century, 1903, I believe, in which he calls higher criticism. Criticism, that is to say, this methods, uh, uh, biblical criticism that look to the origins of the text. Higher criticism, he says, is simply higher anti-Semitism. Uh, so, uh, so there you have a, a critique that is, um, that I think is uh, d- does uh, correctly diagnose the the uh, infiltration of certain anti-Semitic premises into the work of some uh, some of historical criticism. Right, and we're not speaking of. Maybe the point isn't that Wellhausen was personally anti-Semitic or something like that, but that there are certain biases that come from the the position of the background of each individual scholar that, and maybe the culture of of the time. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this doesn't this this didn't it 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 it, it was. Um, it, it, it was a convenient way to dismiss historical criticism or historical attentiveness to the Bible. We don't need to deal with this in the tradition because the people who are doing it are simply motivated by anti-Semitism. And so uh, we shouldn't be uh, uh, allow that kind of those kinds of biases to dismiss the project as a whole, but we have to be uh, right, aware of them. Right. right. Nathan, you were going to add something? Yeah, I just wanted to add that on the, on the Christian side, um, while there's always been pushback from um, believers— various sorts for understandable reasons. A lot of the the new scholarship on Christian origins in 19th century Germany proceeds on the assumption that um, the Christian movement started with something good and often proto-Protestant, either with Jesus or Paul or, or both and then um, quickly lapsed into a kind of uh, Judaizing uh, mixture of authentic Christian thought with um, aspects of of Judaism and also paganism, and then decline from there. I mean, I I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that some version of that declension narrative into, you know, mixing, say, Pauline theology with, with Jewishness is is ubiquitous in the historiography of early Christianity in the 19th and in, to some extent in the, the 20th century as well. So while, I mean, I, I hope we're going to talk about some of some about the um, the enduring contributions of historical criticism. Uh, so it doesn't sound like the whole thing can be dismissed. It can't. I think if you if you pick up the works of people like F. C. Bauer in the in the 19th century, the really important people. With this in mind, um, you won't be disappointed. I mean, you, th- this is this is the the kind of the founding myth that drives a lot of the historical study. But can I push back a little bit? Okay, I just want to push back from the point of view of my undergraduate self, Manchester, nineteen seventy-seven. Um, like what I took away from JEPD, from the idea of these four sources, 
was that the Yahwist and the Elohist have a really childish, concrete, anthropomorphic idea of God, and Yahweh closes the door of the ark, you know? Whereas the priestly author, who's supposed to have, say, written a Genesis 1, very nice, low, ritualistic, slow, um, that he has a more transcendent, distant idea of God. And so as it came into English Bible scholarship, it may have dropped the heavy Protestant anti-Semitism. And it's not all about P is legalistic and Pharisaic. It's just more like uh, P has a transcendent idea of God and J and E have a more mm. useful childlike idea of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, I, even right with respect to this, um, to this suggestion right about the different theologies of the sources, they're not inevitably... Uh, I mean, poisoned by their um, by the particular assumptions of uh, of certain nineteenth uh, century scholars, uh, there is a lot to say about the the, the question of uh, whether J is early and, and of all course, of that. Of but, course, but, because but, it's but still it's aside, a, yeah. Why yeah. should the anthropomorphic come first? Right, but yeah, but yeah. But, but but putting that aside, of course, the, 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 absolutely. I mean, the the, the findings of, uh, of of historical criticism more generally are are, are absolutely uh, essential to uh, to the understanding of the Bible, and as much as things have changed. Uh, there are enduring contributions, and it's a it's a robust field. So we're going to return to these enduring contributions. I think now is a good time to take a break. We're going to move up to the 20th century and maybe even get to the 21st century, which would be great. Now is a good time for you, friends, to think about rating Minute Scripture. You have stars there. I suggest you put down five, and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Minding Scripture. So, Svi, um, I just want to follow up. We were speaking about the enduring contribution of biblical criticism and making the point that it's not all bad. There is good there. So, just in that regard, what about the two specific ideas we were addressing, contributions of biblical um, criticism, the first being documentary hypothesis, four sources for the Pentateuch, the second being connection to ancient Near East, the, the contributions of Assyriology, um, did, the, did these endure, these two ideas? Did they still shape biblical scholarship? Uh, so, sure. So, on the, on the first documentary hypothesis, the documentary hypothesis in its classical form, these particular four documents, this particular way in which they were combined, that is no longer a reigning hypothesis. There isn't the same sort of consensus, but there is consensus that the Pentateuch has complicated origins, and I'd say there is a consensus that about a certain kind of documentary hypothesis, namely a distinction between priestly material and non-priestly material. That seems to be a part of the hypothesis that really does hold up, and there's a fundamental distinction between these two different uh, groups of texts, uh, how to further divide the material, how to date the material. Uh, that is a question. Uh, th there are neo-documentarians that offer something like the classical hypothesis, uh, albeit with a different set of assumptions about the order uh, in which they um, uh, in which they were produced. But uh, even alongside that, beyond the neo-documentarians, who are a, a relatively small group, there is a pretty strong consensus, uh, I would say, about this insight, uh, a distinction between priestly and non-priestly. As for the ancient Near East, uh, I, th I think the importance of the ancient Near East for understanding the Bible uh, has only increased as new 
texts have been uncovered after the original uh, discoveries in Iraq. Uh, there are um, many other uh, discoveries at other sites, at uh, Ugarit, for example, right along the Mediterranean, uh, is a tremendously important site for understanding the Bible and the theological questions about the relationship between uh, Yahweh and Baal. Right. Um, right. So, uh, so the, yeah, the, the contributions of the ancient Erist are enduring, and there, there is no question that uh, one can't understand uh, the Hebrew Bible uh, without a thorough grounding in uh, ancient Near Eastern texts, cultures, uh, languages. Right. Thank you. What about the New Testament, Nathan? Um, it keeps, it's well known that the life of Jesus movement keeps running into the sand and then starting up again. Uh, right now, we're on about the fourth quest for the historical Jesus. <laughs> Every time they have one, they give up and then they start again and they give up and they start again. Do we know more about the historical Jesus now than we did in the 18th century? Do we know more about the composition of the synoptics and John? Do we know more about the Pauline corpus? When I was an undergraduate, we were taught pretty much the old-fashioned, the old Paul, uh, the old look on Paul where he'd been a terrible, miserable Pharisee and he was struggling to redeem himself and then he saw the light and he threw away all that Pharisaic garbage. And then, you know, when I returned to teaching biblical studies 10 years later, there was the new look on Paul and Pharisaism was good. And so, <laughs> um, like... Are we actually making any progress in this field? Can we date the Gospels? Can we? Yeah, it's a good question. I think one place where we clearly have made progress in the study of Jesus in the Gospels is in taking seriously the Gospels themselves as literature, what kind of literature they are, what kind of historical information we can mine from them, and what their relationship is to each other. So we take it for granted now that, say, between um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the so-called synoptic gospels, you know, there is extensive verbatim agreement in Greek between them. And um, rather than trying to harmonize the four gospels into one uh, great meta story, we all, we put them side by side in columns, and uh, you can see that you know people disagree on who's reading whom, but that they are reading each other, and that there's a lot that we can work out about the individual concerns of the different authors. That's usually called um, well, source criticism leading to redaction criticism. That's good. I should note that that's not completely new either. I mean, Augustine does something similar to this. So it's, it's a recurring uh, motif in a conversation like this. A lot of what we celebrate as new has actually been around for a long time. We've come to an increased appreciation, especially toward the end of the 19th century, starting, I think, especially with Vreda and his famous book on the Messianic Secret. Vreda asked the question, you know, why is Jesus in Mark's gospel telling everybody to shut up all the time? The demons, people he heals, why doesn't he want any, anybody to talk? I don't know anybody who thinks that Vreda answered that question correctly, but what he did that was, that was really important for the study of Jesus in the Gospels is he said, I, I don't want to just take the Gospels at face value. I want to know what did this mean for Mark, for the author, in his historical setting. So scholars have started to look at all four Gospels as windows into the world of their composition, which makes them then a, a resource for understanding uh, later first century Christianity, and then also refines our sense of what we're able to know about Jesus from the Gospels. 
if you read 19th century, I mean, you could call it historical Jesus scholarship, a lot of it assumes that we can um, figure out, you know, Jesus's inner psychological progression from one passage to another. You know, Jesus went up on a mountain because something made him sad in the previous passage, and we, we have an increased sense that that's that, you know, that the, the Gospels are not like modern biographies giving us that kind of psychological development. So that's a real advance. I think we have a better sense of the genre of the Gospels and their relationship uh, with each other. With Paul, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. I think, you know, there's, a, there's a, a famous saying often misattributed to Albert Schweitzer that when one looks at the history of historical Jesus studies, it's like a person looking down a well and seeing his own reflection. So you're describing something else, but you're actually describing yourself. It's actually said by George Terrell, um, a, a Catholic. Modernist. Yeah, yeah, a modernist, <laughs> yeah. I think that that's even more true with Pauline studies. Um, a lot of New Testament scholars clearly have more of a vested interest in getting Paul right than they do with getting, getting Jesus, Jesus right, right <laughs> which seems strange. But I, I think it's true. So we have come to, as you said, Francesca, to an Im increased sense of Paul's Jewishness, that defining Paul as the pure antithesis of what is Jewish, that, that I think that is a real advance. Something analogous has happened with the study of Jesus. But it's important to point out as we're um, assessing gains and losses or credits and debts that that's partly just a, a correction of, of a problem that was created by historical critics themselves. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so, mm -hmm. so historical critics set up Jesus and Paul as a radical antithesis to Judaism, and then, you know, a century later realized they were wrong and congratulate themselves for doing it. Maybe, uh, maybe there's been some overcorrection. I don't know if we want to jump into current debates, but, I mean, ha have we made, um, emphasized too much the enduring, continuing Jewishness of the early, uh, that's reflected in the lives of, of Paul and, and Jesus? I feel less confidence in pronouncing on that because we don't have enough uh, distance to talk about it in the same way that we're talking about some of these 19th century mm -hmm. developments because yeah. this is still yeah. very much in New Testament studies a live debate. I mean, if, so if you look at you know, Jesus, Paul, or the study of individual gospels, um, for example, like Matthew, many scholars would like to say that Matthew is completely within the world of Judaism. Other people would want to say that, you know, we see Matthew and the other gospels moving outside into it, you know, kind of a different phenomenon. So, so we, we don't agree um, on this. So some scholars would argue that there's an overcorrection. Yeah. I, I don't think so myself. But. What do we know about the historical Bible today that we would not have known if historical criticism had never been invented. But about 20 years ago, a guy called Niall Ferguson developed these, this hypothetical history. Uh, it was a big thing. And so I want you to do a kind of like both of you to do a sort of hypothetical historical uh, reconstruction. What would the hypothetical um, world of scholars not know about the historical Bible, which we do now know if historical criticism had never been invented. So imagine a world in which 18th and 19th century, there's no Spinoza, there's no Wellhausen. None of, for some reason, it just never takes off. And we're in the same world except for that never happened. Now, what would we not have, Zvi and Nathan? 
Well, so yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, it would really look uh, right quite different. We'd be out of jobs, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> you would still exist. You and Nathan there would be would no still. CJA. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, well, f- well, for one, our our dictionaries would be would be uh, very impoverished. Uh, th- there are so many biblical words that are. Uh, unintelligible or have been uh, understood incorrectly uh, because uh, the uh, because we didn't have the data from uh, Akkadian, from Ugaritic, uh, from these ancient Near Eastern languages that uh, enable us properly to understand them. Um, I'd want to put you on the spot, but do any examples come to mind of specific words that we relearned maybe in the 19th, 20th century through biblical scholarship? Um, sure. Um, well, there is uh, one of the one of the tribes, one of the t- twelve tribes of Israel, is Zebulun, and uh, the, his uh, etymology, the etymology that's given for him in the Bible, is uh, Leah. Leah. She, she says after his birth that uh, uh, now that Zebulun has been been born, he's Beleni Ishi. My husband will zebel me. Uh, but what exactly does that mean? Uh, you don't really have much in the Bible to go on because that root isn't uh, really used elsewhere, uh, except uh, in, in our references that don't seem to seem immediately applicable. But in Ugarit, these myths about Baal, the god Baal, who's well known from the Bible, uh, but mu- mu- uh, much enlightened by Ugaritic, uh, he is uh, referred to as Prince Baal uh, and Zabal. This this root, this this uh, this same s- um, sequence of consonants is used there to describe Baal as a as a prince. Piecing this together with other data from Akkadian, and then. We can appreciate in light of that other words in the Bible that are connected to it, uh, but which we wouldn't have known without this data. Uh, we can understand that this root means to exalt, to lift up, to raise up, so that so Baal as prince is exalted. Uh, and so th- that's just one example. Of, I mean, there are there are endless examples. Uh, so I'd say one one big difference, uh, and, and that is the work of uh, Moshe Held, who's a great uh, a great Semitist uh, study uh, student of Semitic languages, who uh, pieced together. Uh, that relationship between these roots. Are you saying, going from what you said overall, are you saying that uh, we wouldn't have the big theories and the meta narratives, uh, but we would have the philology and the study of languages? Uh, no, no. My my point is that b- beyond the big theories that we've been speaking about, how yeah. the Pentateuch came about, uh, what is the um, uh, an awareness that this flood narrative that's in the Bible uh, is not just the Bible's, but it's uh, but it's the Bible's take on a more general mythic motif, or that you know the account of Eden is the, again the Bible's take on a set of possibilities for narrating the early history of human beings that we find elsewhere in the ancient Near East. Beyond those very fundamental questions, the very meaning of words, many, many, many words, uh, would not be possible without the contributions of historical criticism. So, uh, so yeah, I'm locating that as one uh, enduring contribution of historical criticism. And in a world without historical criticism, we'd be fumbling about in the dark when it comes to a lot of words in the Bible. So simply at the at the purely etymological level, uh, a kind of dictionary that we can produce, a modern dictionary of biblical Hebrew uh, will make reference to the words in Akkadian or Ugaritic, you know, many times in any page. Uh, so that's one enduring difference. I, I'd perhaps I'd, I'd, I'd note an, another one, another way in which our understanding of the Bible would be different. And I think 
uh, for myself anyhow, impoverished, uh, would be that as, as much as the documentary hypothesis, say, to come to the Pentateuch in its classical form, is no longer accepted, uh, there is this understanding that the Bible, including the Pentateuch, reads as a single narrative, but if you bore down, you see here conflict, different theological visions coming into a conversation with each other. Uh, and so it's a very different, uh, and for me anyhow, in, in terms of my own kind of theological inclination, a much richer portrait, but in any case, truer to history, a much richer portrait of the development of these basic questions about uh, that, that the Bible is interested in. Who is God? What is God's relationship with the world? What, what does it mean for God to be intervening in the world and developing a relationship with Abraham, a covenant? These are all categories, questions that when you read the Bible, ahistorically, you get uh, what looks like a single answer on, or at least when it comes to the Pentateuch, you get a single answer on, uh, and historical criticism enables us to appreciate that what you can really find is uh, a whole symphony of competing, discussing, debating voices. And Nathan, the same question in a world in which historical criticism had not come about, what would New Testament scholarship be lacking? Or how would we know less about the New Testament if we'd had no form criticism, no none of this? I think something analogous to what Svi just said about the Hebrew Bible would be true. We would have a much poorer sense of the the world of the New Testament texts. Um, we'd have a, a much poorer sense of the world of first century Judaism um, out of which the New Testament texts um, come, even down to something, again, as simple as the meaning of words. One of the easiest places to show the benefits of historical criticism is when it comes to just the addition of new data, new texts, uh, literary texts, non-literary texts, you know, uh, documentary papyri receipts, contracts, things like that greatly enrich our understanding of the language of the New Testament, which is often written in a, in a Greek that uh, resembles the kind of um, sort of workaday Greek that you find in, in that kind of literature. Um, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls um, has greatly advanced our understanding of, um, of, of the Jewishness of, of many New Testament texts. So, I mean, we would be, we would be in big trouble. We've also advanced um, new techniques which in some cases just are better, sometimes combining new data with new techniques. This is easiest to show with New Testament textual criticism, which is sometimes distinguished from historical criticism. That's a little bit artificial. It's, it's really part of the, the overall process. So if, for example, if you sit down with a King James Bible, um, you look at the, at the New Testament and compare it to a modern translation like the NRSV or the, the NAB, you'll see lots of, lots of differences. And that comes from the fact that we, we, just, we do have a much better understanding of the way that the New Testament um, manuscripts, the way they looked in antiquity, were able to positively identify um, certain things that are, say, printed in a King James Bible as later accretions. And so that's a, that's a significant advance um, that also then, in turn, aids our theological understanding of individual authors. I mean, to take a very famous example, Mark's gospel famously ends in the, in the oldest and best manuscripts with the women running out from the tomb. They've just been informed that Jesus is risen, though they don't see him, and they're supposed to tell the disciples that he is risen. And, they say, and, it, and Mark ends by saying, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Hmm. 
And of course, people in antiquity found that that ending unsatisfactory, and so multiple endings were were written and added. And actually, one of them is is canonical for some Christian groups. But the text-critical work that reveals that Mark himself, well, maybe wanted to end there, or maybe was just stopped for some reason, then contributes to our understanding of of Mark's own theology, Mark's own way of of telling the story. So we, we he just be- ended abruptly. I do that too, <laughs> and they, they they just he just liked to end abruptly. I always, I just say the end, and that's it. Well, it, it is it is true. You can debate. I mean, there's always there's always uh, the devils in the details. I mean, many texts uh, in antiquity do end with an abruptness that we would say we would dock our students for if they did. And and you know maybe he just got tired or ran out of money. So it's it you can debate how much to build on that theologically. So I I want to ask about. Um, we spoke about enduring contributions. I want to ask about enduring resistance because we've heard about some ways in which biblical criticism has been a good thing, even at the basic level of understanding vocabulary better, but a richer understanding, for example, of the world of the New Testament. So that's great. And in many ways, biblical criticism informs what we do today, even at a place like Notre Dame. Of course, mining scripture um, comes from the Department of Theology at Notre Dame. And when we teach in the classroom, you know, when I teach foundations, I introduced the students to the documentary hypothesis, although apparently both among Catholics and Jews and others, there was a time where that would, that would not have been cool, right? That not would, That's right. Would not Early have been 20th okay. century, yeah. So, um, but now, you know, at Notre Dame, which, you know, we don't only play football, but we also teach um, theology in the Catholic tradition. That's, that's expected, right? If you, re- if you said Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, you wouldn't be taken seriously on a scholarly level. I think, but there there must still be resistance. And I was thinking, you were speaking about boring down deeper to detect the granular aspects of the biblical text suite. And then Nathan, you spoke about later accretions in Mark. And I just wondered, there's some people who say that more granular view or that more maybe precise but critical view of Mark, that doesn't actually get us closer to truth. Where does resistance come from in biblical scholarship? Just to clarify, you know, resistance in biblical scholarship, you mean traditional resistance to biblical scholarship, or is that... Uh, I'm guessing that today there are academic scholars who, for philosophical reasons, object to the usefulness of biblical scholarship and getting closer to truth, and there are perhaps people within believing communities who have more confessional objections. So, uh, yeah, sure. is that right? Or? Yeah, okay, well, I mean, I'd say within, within scholarship, I mean, within the field of biblical scholarship to say the sorts of people who will end up at the at the annual gathering of the Society of Biblical Literature. Historical criticism as an enterprise is, is taken for granted, and, and there, is no, there is no opposition to that, and I think for, for good reason. But there was relatively recently, we had on an, on an earlier podcast, Robert Alter, uh, who, who just produced a, a, a translation of the entire Hebrew Bible. There, there was a reaction, say, among uh, scholars who were in, this is in the uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, scholars coming from uh, the field of literature uh, who felt that historical criticism, source criticism in particular, had a kind of a tin ear for the uh, for the literary quality of the Bible and some of the judgments uh, that source critics were making 
the criteria that they were using failed to account for the quality of the Bible as literature. Right. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I, maybe this is saying the same thing, but I mean, if you keep breaking it apart into smaller original pieces, you just get fragments, right? I mean. Uh, Right, right, and there is right one one school of Pentateuchal source criticism that uses that terminology of, of fragments and thinks of the Bible as kind of a, an agglomeration of fragments, and that can pose a challenge for theology. Uh, though to some extent, it puts theology or the theological enterprise of making sense of biblical teaching on a different footing. It doesn't preclude it, uh, but it compels one to ask: uh, What are the theologies of these uh, of these different voices? What is the uh, theology? of the editor who is, uh, or the redactor who is combining them. Uh, but then also, of course, uh, whatever, the, whatever the findings of historical criticism, uh, the fact is that for traditional communities, Jews, Christians, the Bible, uh, whatever its origins, does eventually emerge in the form that we know it, or roughly the form that we know it, uh, and, then it and, and it's canonical, and it, it's the foundation for Jewish self-understanding, for Christian self-understanding ever after. Uh, well, while uh, historical criticism is cons- per- perceived as as a, as, a, as a threat still in many traditional Jewish communities. The fact is that whatever the results of historical criticism, you still do in the end have a Bible. Uh, and for me, for example, as a, uh, uh, as, uh, as a Jew who uh, kind of conceives of, uh, of, of himself as working, as living within a tradition, the Bible as a whole is a theologically significant artifact, the fundamental theologically significant fact, irrespective of the uh, historical background. Uh, and so you have, uh, for me anyhow, a, a theologically richer portrait where you have both these competing voices uh, that are discovered through careful historical criticism, and then you have the, the Bible as a whole. But there does remain undoubtedly traditional opposition in some circles to, in, in more, more traditional circles, orthodox uh, circles uh, in particular, to historical criticism. I think that is definitely fair to say. Though it does also work the other way for some conservative uh, believers, both Jews and Christians, in the sense that uh, you can call it fragments, but another word for fragments is sources. Mm-hmm. And if there are no sources, and if the whole Pentateuch, for example, was written by one guy in the post-exilic period with no sources, then it was just made up by one guy. And so you get conservative Jews and Christians arguing and defending sources. Mm. Um, I guess and that must go back to Richard Simon, that actually the existence of sources is better than the existence of no, ex- no sources. And one Jewish Herodotus uh, writing in the post-exilic period means the whole thing is a fake. Right, and there had, <laughs> it has been suggested, right, that these uh, that that the kind of neo documentarian source criticism does have the advantage of pushing back against the idea, say, that the entire Pentateuch uh, or much of the Pentateuch was an exilic. Persian era phenomenon of the sixth or fifth centuries. Of course, this is to speak of the motivations of scholars, scholars which is a very tricky sort of thing. Uh, ultimately, uh, one hopes the uh, one hopes the, uh, the 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 uh, the arguments stand on their own and can be evaluated on their own. So we're running out of time, but I think we maybe can give the last word to Nathan to comment on this question of resistance. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's understandable that believers um, and some theologians of my acquaintance would fear or resent historical criticism because it's it, you, know, you have experts with um, information that they don't have telling them that things that they thought were true about the Bible weren't exactly true. 
I think some of the fault for this, at least on the New Testament side, probably lies with historical critics themselves. Biblical scholars often like to play the wet blanket. You know, we like to say, you know, you thought Jesus, um, you know, he was, he was laid in the manger because there's no room in the inn, but actually there is no inn in, in Luke 2. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good, that's a, that's a true, uh, an accurate example. But also because I think we haven't done quite as good of a job with the actual interpretation of the New Testament text as we have with the world around the New Testament. Hmm. So while historical criticism is obviously indispensable and has made real gains, not in the sense of inevitable progress toward a shining future, but maybe more like a ratchet effect every now and then, something clicks over and we can't go back. There's a real real gain, like recognizing the Jewishness of Paul, for example. While that has happened, when it comes to, say, understanding a parable of Jesus, it's often, I'm going to say something that I'm sure other people in my field will disagree with. It is not at all apparent to me that if you pick up a, a book on the parables of Jesus, that you're going to do any better than you would do if you just picked up Origen or Augustine um, or the medieval gloss tradition on that same parable. It's unfortunate that there are still some um, theologians who would like to get rid of this whole enterprise. I think it's obviously indispensable, even for just understanding the simple meanings of words. I do understand why some people question exactly what the payoff is, and I think that the onus is on historical critics to, to do better. Thank you. So today we've been speaking about the history of biblical criticism and some of the controversies and debates that have unfolded over the past Um, decades and even in the 19th century already. But it sort of leads us to the big question, which is what have we actually accomplished? Where have we gotten? I mean, what would you say, um, Nathan, about that? What what real accomplishments have been made in the history of academic biblical criticism? That's a big question. I think we've made clear uh, progress in the acquisition of relevant information of data that um, greatly enriches our understanding of the languages of the Bible themselves, of of the culture. I mean, it's right. it's it's been a gold mine, a, a wonderful success right. in the last uh, couple of hundred years. In some cases, we've refined techniques that help us do things like establish what the text itself might have been mm-hmm. um, with greater accuracy. Sometimes um, historical critics really just change the question, but in ways that are fruitful. So we were interested in things that our predecessors in earlier centuries sometimes were not. Um, And and some of those questions are very important. At the same time, um, I think it's it's clear we can we can say at this point that progress in this in the study of the Bible is not linear, that it that is, it's not always just getting better and it's not inevitable. So even regress is possible. There can be, right. Yeah, we can regress as well. For example, if you dig into the history of scholarship, amnesia is a problem. I mean, some, sometimes, you know, there are things that say the good 19th century scholars knew that then people in the 20th century forgot. There are also examples, I think, I, I would argue, of uh, new problems, distortions that are introduced by historians, for example. I mean, and this isn't surprising when you think about it. New biases. Um, for example, there's always been a problem in Christianity of, with anti-Judaism, but you can, there, there have been times in the history of biblical scholarship when that anti-Judaism grew and took on greater significance and, and played a you know, serious role in distorting our understanding of, of biblical texts. Thank you. 
Friends, if you like this um, episode, you'll want to listen to our next episode on Mining Scripture, which addresses the question of critical scholarship in regard to the Quran. So we'll move on to the Islamic Holy Scripture. Please spread the news about Mining Scripture. Don't forget to rate and also why not add a review of our podcast and be sure to join us for our next episode of Mining Scripture where divine word and human reason meet. Mm-hmm.